Amen. Go ahead, be finding the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, maybe perhaps by now we kind of have a feel for where it's at in our Bibles. We continue uh, our series through the book, and that's our regular habit. What we usually do is we'll take a book and we'll walk through it, and at this point we're in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and we're in chapter 3 this week. And we continue the series entitled, Faithful to Restore. Faithful to Restore. If you peeked ahead this week and you read this chapter, which I highly recommend you do and encourage you to do every week. Alright, so maybe this week, read. go ahead and read chapter 4. We're going to cover all of chapter 3 this week. Uh, or perhaps now you've, you've had a moment to find that in your Bible and you've began to scan the contents of of chapter 3, and so it might lead you to be asking a couple of questions. Uh, First one, you might be wondering, what in the world is Brother Cody going to preach from this? That is a valid question. (laughs) Very valid question. Uh, At first glance, we might be tempted to think, what does a bunch of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names from 2,500 years ago, mean for me today, mean for us today. And the Lord gently, because I was thinking that, all right, when I, when I stepped in here this week and I began to look and the Lord gently reminded me of a passage of scripture that I want to gently remind you of this morning. And that scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And that scripture says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Nehemiah 3 is part of all Scripture. And it too is breathed out by God. And so, what does that mean? The passage before us, chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah, with its hard-to-pronounce names, its names of walls and names of gates, it too is God's Word, and it is in this Bible for our instruction. Right? And because it's God's Word and because it has instruction, then that means it's profitable for us as well. So there is instruction contained in this word from Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning. And by the power of God's word, through the help of the Spirit, we will together labor to uncover that instruction this morning. And so here's what we're going to do, and I want to prepare you for it. We are going to read all of chapter 3 together this morning. Okay, And I'm going to assume that you really don't know any better than me how these names are pronounced. So I'm just going to read them and say it with confidence and keep going, all right? So I did listen online to this chapter read, and so I I think I've got most of them. We'll see. So if you would, let's prayerfully, let's read chapter 3 together. In verse 1, it says this, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Amri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. 
They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshazebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joada, the son of Passia, and Meshulam, the son of Bezadiah, repaired the gate of Yeshina. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhohiah, goldsmiths repaired. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. And next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumph, <laughs> repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattish, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Helahash, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hekahiram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kohose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, this is a different Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Raham, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hasabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Hinnadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashab, to the end of the house of Eliashab. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. And after them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Masiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benuah, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Pilal, the son of Yuza, uh, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projected projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, 
Pediah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Chapter 3 of the book of Nehemiah. Would you pray with me? Father, we do confess that we believe that every name, every word that we just read is your word. And Lord, and you breathed it out for a purpose. And there is correction and there is reproof. There is training and righteousness that we all may be equipped for every good work in this chapter. Lord, would you help us see it? Lord, would you help me now as I teach it? Give us understanding, not for information's sake, but Lord, that we may be transformed and changed by the power of your word. We thank you. We ask for your help. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Admittedly, I must confess to you, this is a tough text to preach from. Okay. Well, for one, it's a tough text to preach from because it's a tough text to read from. I don't know if you noticed that. I was struggling a little bit up here. All right. And it is. It's a tough text. And week to week, when I when I'm preparing for this moment uh, to stand before you, I start and I just start by reading the text over and over and over again. And I'm writing down any observations I may see and I'm seeking to understand what the text is communicating. And then at that point, I'll start to consult some other resources, right? Some some commentary, some things online. Uh, now, you might not be surprised to find that there's the commentaries don't have much to say about this chapter. They just don't. Uh, in fact, one well-known commentator, if I said his name, you know him, he skips it entirely. They don't even treat it. <laughs> he just goes on to chapter 4 from chapter 2. Uh, another well-known Bible teacher, he does what's called, he allegorizes the whole text. Uh, in other words, each gate and each person has a symbolic and spiritual meaning, meaning so that the sheep gate all of a sudden refers to Jesus as the great good shepherd and the fish gate refers to uh, our calling to be fishers of men. And, and I want to confess to you, while that may make for good creativity, that's bad hermeneutics. Right? What is hermeneutics? It's the science of Bible interpretation. And, and these gates, they don't really have those symbolic meanings, I do not think. Now, even Spurgeon, I, I, I'm going to look at Spurgeon and what he has to say. I quote the great Baptist British preacher quite often. And in chapter 3, he makes mention of verse 8 of the broad wall, and he interprets it as the church needs to be separated from the world, a broad wall between us. While I agree with his point, that point is true enough, I don't even think that's the meaning of the text. It's not what it's here for. 
So where do we start when we're asking, okay, what is the instruction for us in Nehemiah chapter 3? We ask this question here. Why did God include Nehemiah 3 in Scripture? That's where we start. What does He want us to learn from it? And what is the lesson that we take away? Another question we start with is this. What did Nehemiah intend for his hearers to take away by inspiration of the Spirit? That's where we always start. I, when you're reading your Bible, if your interpretation could not have meant that to the one that wrote it, then it's wrong. Okay? We start with authorial intent. What did the author intend? Both God and him speaking and inspiring the biblical human writer who wrote it. Now that's where interpretation starts, and that's where we have to start with Nehemiah chapter 3. And the answer to those questions is the main point of the passage, and it's the main point of this sermon. And this is it. Here's the main point. If you don't get anything else, this is it. This is what you need to know from Nehemiah chapter 3. Here's the main point. God works through a community of people working together to accomplish His purposes. That's it. That's why Nehemiah chapter 3 is here. To prove that God works through a group of people to accomplish His purposes. In fact, you notice in your bulletin there the title of the sermon. God's work, a community effort. A community effort. It requires a group of people to obey and walk and carry out God's purposes in the world. Which also means this. God's work... What he's doing in the world right now is not on the shoulders of individuals, but on the shoulders of individuals working together as a community. That's the point. And that's the instruction that we are to take away. And to set this up, I want you to know that this has always been true. God did not redeem and restore Israel in the Old Testament so that they could go their own way as individuals. He redeemed and restored them as a community of faith. A community who together would be His people. A community who together, where He would be their God. And I want you to know that this was true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament as well, and in the New Testament counterpart, the church. You see how that works? God redeems a community of people in the Old Testament. What's He doing in the New Testament? He is redeeming and restoring a group of people and forming His church. God works through a community of people. And the truth of the matter is this. The Bible knows nothing of an individualized form of religion. You won't find it. The Bible does not teach some form of individualized personal relationship with God that is disconnected from a community of people. You won't find it. You don't find that idea in the Old Testament. You don't find it in the New Testament. In fact, our scripture reading this morning was 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And that is the New Testament understanding of the church. Individual members who come together to form the body, the community of people. That the body of Christ is made up of individuals who work in connection with each other. Now, I need to make a point here. The Bible does teach personal relationships with God as our Father. right? A personal relationship, a personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ that reconciles us to God as our Father. It does teach that. However, even then, the Bible does not mean or teach 
that our faith is a private matter. It doesn't. Because here's the truth. When we receive God as Father, we receive His kids as our brothers and sisters. Right? It's the truth. So people who claim that I have the Lord and have no need of the church, they're totally misunderstanding the Bible. In fact, if you'd been, if you'd have had that thought process in the early church when the Bible was written, you would have missed out on all the instruction. Because you know what it was written to? Churches. Community of people. The Bible knows nothing of individualized faith. It knows everything about bringing individuals together as a community. And that's what Nehemiah 3 is teaching. Individuals coming together for a purpose bigger than themselves. Now, today, God's program to display His glory and accomplishes His purposes on earth is no longer bound up in a wall and it's no longer bound up in a city. It said God's program on earth to display His glory and accomplish His purposes is in that He is building a church. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 16? Tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's building a church. So what is the call this morning to Fellowship Baptist Church from Nehemiah chapter 3? And this is it. There's room for you on the wall at Fellowship Baptist Church. There is room for you on the wall at Fellowship Baptist Church. The call then is find your gifting. Find the gift. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 12, didn't we? The Holy Spirit imparts gifts to individuals for the edification of the community, of the body. Find your gifting, find your spot, and grab a brick. Go to work at Fellowship Baptist Church, at a church for the glory of God and for the benefit of His people. Now, I want to turn to five observations, and it won't take us very long, I promise. So what's observation one we find from Nehemiah chapter three? And it's this. Everyone was involved in the work. Observation one. Everyone was involved in the work. When we just read through Nehemiah chapter 3, I knew it took some time, I know it did, but we just read there were over 40 different groups of people, okay? That doesn't mean there was 40 people. Honestly, there were hundreds if not thousands of people working on this thing. But what we know is that they were divided into 40 different groups of people working around the city to rebuild the walls and the gates. And in verse 1, we read what? The high priest is there. In verse 22, the priests and the temple servants are working. In verse 8, the goldsmiths are working. In verse 8, the perfumers are working. We read in verse 12 that, that a man's daughters are working. So there's men and women. We read that there were rulers of districts. There, there, there are political officials. There are common folk and there are rich nobles and there are all ages and they are all involved in the work. No one is disqualified from this work. Now, I want to, to point out this, that in all the names and the mention of their occupations, did you notice it mentioned what they did? There was something very important missing. If you notice, there's not one mention of a carpenter. There's not one mention of a craftsman. 
someone who made their living building. Instead, it seems that it was ordinary people with probably no prior experience on the wall working. And they are working together to accomplish God's purposes. God's work is not just for the professionals. It's for the ordinary people who will trust Him. And He'll use them. Did you notice that, yeah, the religious people are there too, the high priests and the priests and the temple servants, but they're surrounded by merchants. They're surrounded by perfumers. And they've all come together to do a work for the Lord. Now, what does that mean, mean for us? Here's what it means. Statistics show that when it comes to work within the church, you've probably heard these stats. I've probably used it. I don't know. But about 80% of the work gets done by how many percent of the people? Does anybody know? 20. 80% of the work gets done by about 20% of the people. Now think about that for a moment. That goes with giving too. 20% of the people give 80% of the money. It's probably the same ones, honestly. The ones working is the ones that's given. This kind of thinking applied to the work in Nehemiah and the project fails. There is no wall restoration. There are no gates rebuilt. There are no recording of this great community effort to do something for the glory of God. It doesn't happen. Instead, what we do read is everyone takes it upon themselves to do their part. And so here's the question. What about you? Are you engaged in the work? You know, Alistair Begg, great, great pastor, great preacher, preacher, he made this point about Nehemiah chapter 3, and I want to steal it and give him credit for it. But He said this, If someone came into Jerusalem and was to ask any person in the city about who they are and what work they were doing, they could say, I'm so-and-so and I'm working on the water gate. I'm so-and-so and I'm working on the, the sheep gate or the fish gate, or I'm working on the wall between the fish and the, and the sheep gate, right? Everyone in Jerusalem was engaged in the work. Could that be said about us at Fellowship Baptist Church? If someone were to come up to you and ask about who you are and what you do here at Fellowship Baptist Church, could you respond with, I'm so-and-so, and this is what I do. I'm so-and-so, and this is the gift that God, the Spirit, has given me for the edification of this body, and this is how I'm serving. The New Testament vision for the church is an every-member ministry. Do you know that? Can I read Ephesians 4 to you? It says this in verse 11. It says, He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Every saint with a ministry is the New Testament vision for the church. Every saint with a ministry. What's your ministry? What's the work that you're engaged in now that is building up this body of Christ known as Fellowship Baptist Church? I pray fellowship would be a church with an every-member ministry philosophy. 
And now that don't mean that all ministries and giftings are equal. We read that in 1 Corinthians 12, didn't we? That if everybody's the same, then there are other functions being neglected. We need our differing personalities and our differing giftings to fulfill the call God has on His church. So that's the first thing. Everyone involved in the work. What's the second thing? They came together in unity for the cause. There was unity for the cause. I hope you notice throughout the often repeated phrase, I said it 28 times, after Him. Did you see that? And after Him. And after Him. This picture is that they are all side by side, each doing their part, working together. And, and, and you may not... All right, here, here's, here's a cool fact. All right, I, I saw this. I thought this was really good. There were territories mentioned that I read. I'm going to try to repeat them again. The territories of Jericho, Gibeon, Zenoa, beth Karim, Beth-Zur, and Keilah. Guess what? They are not provinces of Jerusalem. You know what we find out when we study where they are? They are all about 15 to 25 miles away from Jerusalem. And yet, you know what we find? People from those territories are inside Jerusalem and they are working. They've come from their own houses. They've come from their own towns to be involved in the work of this rebuilding. Now, they're Jews. They are Israelites, but they don't live inside Jerusalem. So so why did they come? Like this wall provides them no protection, no defense. So why would they leave their homes and their jobs to go work for two months on a project that has no benefits for them. Here's why. They all came together in unity because the cause was bigger than any one person or group. The cause was bigger than them. The cause was for the glory and the reputation of God. The cause was for Jerusalem because it's God's city. The cause was for Jerusalem because that's where God's temple is. And the cause was Jerusalem because that's where God's name dwells. Now there was much less personal gain for these guys who worked that lived outside the city, but they still came together and they worked for the cause of God because it was bigger than them. We have that same calling. We have a call as believers bigger than ourselves. And guess what? It's going to require sacrifice. Perhaps giving up personal gain for the betterment of the community. That's what these people did. And that leads to the next observation. The work was done sacrificially. The work was done sacrificially. There are multiple instances in chapter 3 where people are going above and beyond their own responsibilities. Uh, They rebuild their assigned section of the wall and they go on and build another section. I just want to show you a couple of these. Uh, We're not going to look at all of them, but look at verse 25. I mean 21. Excuse me. Verse 21. It says, After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired, what's the word? Another. Another section from the door of the house of Eliashib. Now look at verse 27. It says, After him, the Tekoites repaired another section. Look at verse 30. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, 
the sixth son of Zalaph repaired another section. So, so, so what does that mean? What does that mean? It means this. They were on one section of the wall, repairing one section. They finished their responsibilities. And guess where they went? To find another spot to work. Now the Tekoites, there's some of those that came out of the sea. You know what? They could have, they could have just finished their portion of the wall and said, man, I really need to get back home and see how things are going. You know it? I hadn't been home in 50 days. I really should go check. Instead, you know what the Bible says they did? They repaired another section of the wall. They went above and beyond their own responsibilities. They, they do their part and then they take it upon themselves to do more. You know what my prayer is? Fellowship Baptist Church would be full of Hananias and Hanans. I don't have to call you that, but I want you to be that. Alright? Man. Doing work here, finishing up and saying, what's next? What's next? Where's another section of the wall I can repair? That's what we need. We need these attitudes. You know, I think for most of us, if we are serving in any capacity, then it's usually this. I'll do my part, and then everybody else will do their part. That's most of our thoughts. But no, God's work for His glory often requires sacrifice. These guys were sacrificing time, energy, sweat, finances. They're, they're farmers. They make their living off their crops. Their fields aren't being tended to while they're gone. It, it's costly, the work of God. And they do it. They do it. You know, sometimes sacrificial work looks like doing jobs that nobody else wants to do. I want you to point, I want to point your attention to verse 14 real quickly. There's a particular gate, and Malchijah has the responsibility for it. I want to read verse 14. It says, Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. If you're wondering what does dung mean, it means what you think it means. It's the gate where all the trash and all of the things you don't want in the city were taken out of. And it was thrown into a valley just to the east of this gate. Somebody had to do it. Malchijah did it. And he was one of the ones we didn't get to look at, but I, I, I encourage you, go read this later. He was one of the ones that we, we, you read about later in the chapter. Uh, verse 31, After actually, look at verse 31. After him, Malchijah, same one in verse 14. One of the goldsmiths repaired as far as the house of the temple servants of the merchants. What does that mean? He built the dung gate, and then he moved on down the wall and started building some more. This man takes the, the job nobody wants, does it, and then goes on and works some more. He didn't do it begrudgingly. There's a cause bigger than him, and he sacrificed for it. Fourth observation, verse 5 of chapter 1. I want you to see that. Verse uh, Chapter 3, I'm sorry. Verse 1. And next to them... The Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. What's the fourth observation? Here it is. The work will be done even when some won't do it. 
the work will get done even when some don't do it. You know what verse 5 literally reads in Hebrew? It literally means they wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. They said, I'm not going to do it. They were prideful, and that's why it says they wouldn't stoop. They wouldn't humble themselves. In other words, they thought the work was beneath them. They're too important to be doing that. So they didn't stoop. They didn't humble themselves. Here's what I really wanted to name this point. You can watch it done or you can get in on it. That's what happened here. They decided not to do it, so guess what? They watched it. Their participation, their lack of participation did not stop it from getting accomplished. When it comes to God's will and when it comes to His purposes, the work will get done despite some people's refusal to help. And there are some, I'm going to be honest with you and confess to you, and I know it, there are some, even in this church, who will refuse to stoop to serve. And I want you to hear me clearly. That's okay. God will accomplish His purposes here at Fellowship Baptist Church with or without your help. He'll do it. You have to respond with, am I going to be involved? Or will I watch it done? These nobles, they refuse to serve the Lord. Really, in their minds, here's their thought process. I refuse to rebuild the wall, but really, in their refusal to, to, to not rebuild, they were refusing the Lord. See how that works? It wasn't, in their mind, they're not saying no to the Lord. By saying no to what He has commanded to be done, they were saying no to Him. And so I want to warn you, brothers and sisters, if you're not serving the Lord through a ministry of the church, check your heart for pride. Why will I not stoop to serve the Lord? Final observation, last thing. And ultimately, this is what it comes down to. The work is a testimony to God's faithfulness. The work is a testimony to God's faithfulness. When we read about this wall being built, when we hear gates are being set, when we hear people working, and when we're reading about God's faithfulness to His promises to His people. So every time it says, and they rebuilt, and they made strong, and they rebuilt, and they did this, guess what we're reading? God's faithfulness. That's the main point of this this passage, if I could put it that way. Because if you remember, the way Nehemiah prayed in chapter 1 was what God said in His covenant. That He said what? I will drive you out of the land if you turn away from Me. I will judge you, I will punish you for your sin if you turn to idols. And it says He raised up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And by His hand, they went in as judgment. But you know what he also said in the covenant? That on the day you turn and repent, I will gather you back and restore your fortunes. I won't forget you. You've done this wickedness. This wickedness will be judged, but I will restore you when you turn back. We are reading God's faithfulness in Nehemiah 3. He's restoring His people. What does that mean? He's faithful to do what He's promised. He's faithful to restore. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, 
we read something pretty significant. It says, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. It's the only time we read that word in this chapter. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now, what does that word consecrate mean? It means to set apart as holy unto the Lord. Here's what we just understood. This is where they start, and this is representative of the whole wall. Okay? And it's this. The people knew that there was so much more to these walls than just physical brick and mortar. There was so much more to these walls than just a line of defense. What does that mean? The walls were representative. The walls were a symbol of God's faithfulness to His promises. And they're saying, Lord, we set this aside and we acknowledge you did this. You've done what you said you would do and you're doing it through this community of people working together. That's how God works. That's what He does. Now, as we consider our own time of response, okay, to Nehemiah chapter 3, to God's Word, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do in our time of response this morning. I want to point you to God's promises. I want to point you to God's promises. And I want to tell you that just like God was faithful to His people here in the book of Nehemiah, and I want you to hear me clearly, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've turned from your sin and you've turned to Him, then guess what? He has promises He makes to you that He's going to keep. If you know Him, if you've trusted in Jesus, do you believe that? That He has promises that He's going to keep. And just like He was faithful to them, He'll be faithful to us. And I want to remind you, He's promised that one day there will be an ultimate restoration. We saw in Isaiah in the first week how, how this restoration was just a, a small glimpse of the complete restoration He's one day going to perform. And He's promised to do it. And in this restoration, He will put an end to all suffering. In this restoration, there will be an end of all evil. Guess what? There won't be any opposition. In this restoration, He's going to put an end to all brokenness. There will not be a need to rebuild ever again. Think about that. No need. In this restoration, it will include a body that will never fail us. A restoration that includes no more tears. A restoration that will take the place of the world that we know and live in now and will be filled with a new heavens and a new earth. And then even on top of those good promises, here's another promise I want to remind you of. That even when we're walking in the brokenness and we need to rebuild all around us, He promises to walk with us. All the way. That's good. And we have those promises only in Jesus. Only in Him. Not in another place. So whatever brokenness you feel in your life right now, there's a restorer. And He came and His body was broken so that we can be restored. 
And then He promised that one day He's coming back. He's coming back. And He redeems and restores all who trust in Him. But these promises are only for those who believe in Him. Not for anybody else. So what's the call? If you don't know Him, turn. Trust Him. That's the call this morning. I'm going to pray. We'll have a time of invitation. Well, we are so thankful for Jesus. We are so thankful for Your promises. You are faithful to Your people, and You will be faithful to Your people now. Every hurt and every pain we feel will one day be restored. We thank You for the hope we have in the Gospel. And the Gospel simply says that Jesus entered Jerusalem, that He was tried, that He was found condemned, that He was led outside the gates of this wall, and He was crucified on a hill, that He was put in a grave for three days, and then He rose from that grave. And right now, He's alive. And right now, He is at your side, and He's mediating for all His people. Every single person here who has faith in Jesus will be restored. Thank You for Your promises. Lord, I want to ask that You would call people who don't know You, and You would call them to You, that they would turn and trust in You, and that they would find You faithful to Your promises. We thank You so much. We turn this invitation time to You. Ask that You would work. In Jesus' name, Amen.